If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Friday, February the 15th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. Our guest today here in the Hoover Recording Studio on the campus of Stanford University is Paul Peterson. Paul is a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow, Professor of Government, and Director of the Program on Education, Policy, and Governance at Harvard. Paul Peterson is also a senior editor at Education Next, a journal of opinion and research. And that's going to be our topic today, education, in particular, teacher strikes. Paul, before we begin, let's clarify one thing. You are not the Paul Peterson who was on the Donna Reed show in the 1950s. I don't think so. I haven't checked to make sure, but I don't think that's the case. Look him up. He was the family son, kind of a teen heartthrob. I think he had a brief singing career, so you're not that Paul Peterson. I assume you're also not St. Paul Peterson, who was a funk artist. Well, that's closer. Now you're getting close. (laughs) You take on sainthood. Yes, yes. Very good. Uh, So let's talk today about teacher strikes, Paul, um, as this is Friday the 15th. By the time people are listening to this podcast, teachers in Oakland public schools may have gone on strike. Uh, They voted uh, early this month to go on strike. um, And here are their demands. Let me quickly read these off to you, Paul. Uh, In Oakland, they want a 12% raise over three years. They want smaller classes. They want additional counselors and school nurses. Uh, What's interesting about the vote, Paul, it wasn't even close. 2,300 educators voted. The vote was 2,206 to 105. 95% of teachers voting to strike there. And, Paul, this comes on the heels of teacher strikes in Los Angeles. In 2018, we had walkouts in Colorado, North Carolina, actions in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, Kentucky. This is a genuine nationwide phenomenon now. And here's something I want to read to you, Paul, and I want you to reflect on this. So in 1962, members of the National Education Association met in Denver for the organization's 100th annual convention. One of the speakers was a gentleman named Arthur Corey, who at the time was the executive director of the California Teachers Association, the Teachers Union of California, the all-powerful teachers union which supports these strikes. And here's what Mr. Corey said at the time, Paul. This is 1962, and I quote, The strike as a weapon for teachers is inappropriate, unprofessional, illegal, outmoded, and ineffective. He went on to say, quote, you can't go out on an illegal strike one day and expect to go back to your classroom and teach good citizenship the next. Paul Peterson, what happened? Well, there's two parts to your question. The first part is, what is in the immediate environment? What has been happening in the past year that's led to these strikes? Because we've had a period of of labor peace since the 1970s in education. Uh, During the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of teacher strikes as collective bargaining was coming underway. Mm -hmm. And uh, then once it got settled that teachers were going to be organized, were going to be engaged in collective bargaining, at least in certain parts of the country, Uh, things settled down for quite a sustained period of time. And so the uh, fact that we had six states with uh, teacher strikes, statewide uh, teacher strikes this year, and then we've had a series of cities such as Denver, Los Angeles, and Mm -hmm. maybe now Oakland, uh, all of that um, I think is due to the fact that um, the economy is improving and wages are going up more generally in society. The public is becoming more supportive of higher salaries for teachers. We see that in the data that Education Next uh, collects. I, I do a poll annually, and we've seen uh, a bump up in support for higher salaries for teachers. And uh, 
And, of course, the same thing is going on among teachers themselves. They, they were giving much more support to higher salaries than they did just even uh, two, three, two, three years ago. But the, so the support for paying teachers more collapsed when the uh, financial crisis came and nobody had any money and the schools didn't have any money. And, but now it's all come back. Mm -hmm. So prosperity brings demands for more people. people. People want more. So this is across the board. There's a lot of support. And t actually, the public uh, supports uh, teacher strikes. And, and in fact, the support for uh, higher salaries for teachers was even greater in the six states where you had these strikes. So there is something in the air currently that is facilitating uh, this, uh, this new uh, militancy among teachers. It could also be driven by the Janus decision, which was a Supreme Court decision last summer, which uh, said that you didn't have to pay agency fees if you didn't want to join a union now unions got to be showing that they can do something that they, they actually can can uh, uh, deliver the goods for teachers but you got to mobilize to do that and you got to therefore join the group in order to do that so maybe that's a factor as well so mm -hmm. that's the short-term answer now the long-term question is if you go back to the 1930s when uh, the uh, uh, Roosevelt was president Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president he actually supported unions in the United States. He supported the formation of the National Labor Relations Board. He is known as the friend of labor, but he was against collective bargaining in the public sector. He said, if in, when the government is involved, then the people have to decide. You can't turn it over to a union. You can't turn it over to collective bargaining. No special side deals with any particular group. That was his position. That was also the position of the National Education Association. It was a very standard view by the largest professional organization, 90% of all teachers who joined any organization joined the National Education mm -hmm. Association. And they stood against collective bargaining all the way down until 1960, when in New York City, Al Shanker with the American Federation of Teachers, the rival, the small, tiny rival union, right. went on strike in New York City on election day, actually, when uh, Kennedy and Nixon were running against one another. And on that election day, uh, they were quite successful. And before long, uh, AFT was taking members away from the National Education Association. The National Education Association, including the California Teachers Association, turned on a dime. Right. All of a sudden they said, we're going to lose our members to the AFT if we don't go out on strike too. All right. So there has been along the way this change in attitude, though, because here we have in 1962 this member of the CTA saying, we can't go on strike because what does it say to kids about the job we do? But now you have teachers out there walking the picket line. I don't know if you saw the video that came out of Los Angeles. They were, they were angry. They were, I don't want to say militant, but they were pretty darn fired up about what they were doing. Well, of course, one of the things that's really driving the anger right now is the fact that teacher salaries can't go up because so much money has to be put into teacher retirement right. and teacher benefits. There are so many teachers who are retired who are drawing benefits and medical benefits and pension benefits that about 15% of every money put into education is going into these retirement plans. Well, money socked away into these special plans isn't money that you can use to buy the groceries. Right. So teacher salaries are actually slipping relative to the salaries of other college professionals, college educated professionals. So, you know, this is, um, it, it, it's understandable that teachers are concerned, but the problems aren't that the school board isn't generous. School boards are 
appropriating, I mean, they're getting more money, they're raising more money, but they have to spend it on other things. Right. So the question then, Paul, is how much should we pay teachers? A teacher, an average teacher wage in California approaches $80,000 now. It's about $79,128. In Texas, it's only about $55,000. But how do you quantify on one piece of paper how much a teacher should earn? Well, of course, California is an expensive state in which to live. Yes, so uh, yes. Texas is much less so. So right. it's a little bit unfair to compare California salaries to Texas salaries and say yeah, California teacher could get along. I mean, if you look historically what's happened to teacher salaries mm -hmm. over the last 50 years, teacher salaries relative to other occupations has generally slipped. Uh, and it's especially a problem in the high schools. So it, it used to be the case that you got a higher salary if you were a high school teacher. After all, you had to know biology or chemistry or some specific subject. You had a skill that you had to teach. And so it was thought you should be paid more than an elementary school teacher who, as important as they are, didn't have this special skill. Right. And that's the way it is in Europe. Now, in most European countries, the high school teacher is paid more than the elementary school teacher. But now we put everybody on the same salary schedule. So when you put everybody on the same salary schedule, then there's going to be a lot of teachers who probably should be paid more but aren't being paid more. And then you have a lot of teachers who are probably being paid a lot more than they're worth. Then how would you do equality within the system, Paul? Let's say that Professor Whalen, Teacher Whalen, is teaching English in a leafy suburb um, outside of San Francisco. And so he's got a pretty you know, smart group of kids, pretty safe environment. Teacher Peterson is teaching in an inner city where kids are coming to school. You know, they're distracted. They have rough families and so forth, touchy, a hard teaching environment. Is it fair for me to make as much as you in that, in that situation? Well, it, uh, you, we could have battle pay, as they say, right. uh, but I think really the best kind of pay we ha need to have is uh, 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 based on your effectiveness, not mm -hmm. on how much the kid knows, but how much the kid learned over the past year. Merit, about merit pay. Merit pay. Very hard to introduce merit pay. Right. But even more important than that, we have to get rid of the seniority system that allows the se more senior teacher to right. pick and choose where they're going to teach, because that means that the inexperienced beginning rookie teacher is going to right. end up in the most difficult environments teaching the students that are the hardest to teach. And until you change these seniority rules around, you're going to not be able to get the equality of educational opportunity that everybody wants. Now, Paul, didn't Denver go down this road? Doesn't Denver have uh, pay for performance? They have begun to do that. This is Denver, which went on and, strike on Monday. Uh, it's way. it's yeah. a very limited step in that direction. It's not a, ma a major change, but even that modest change has, uh, although the union agreed to it initially, uh, they're now fighting back on that. I don't know the outcome of that. That uh, uh, collective bargaining agreement has just been settled, and right. the accounts that I've read are too uh, fragmentary for me to know mm. whether or not they were able to alter that. They got a, a salary increase, but the much more important question is not salary increase, but whether the structure of the compensation system was altered from what was agreed some, some years back. Right. Do you have any moral qualms with teachers going on strikes? Nurses go on strikes, other public officers go on strikes. Is, do you think it's all right for educators to do this? Well, should people be able to go out on strike? I mean, that is, uh, that's a topic that uh, has been decided right. by states. And so, you know, some states say yes, some states say no. And if, if, the, if, if the collective... The public seems to think it's okay, and more so today than previously. Right. So what I'm, surp I'm surprised at just how widespread 
it is uh, public sentiment is in favor of allowing teachers to go on strike. I think as part of it is a feeling is they wouldn't go out on strike unless they were really in need of more resources. So right. they are really fighting for the children. I think it'd be interesting, Paul, for you to do a survey on a state before and after a state before the strike, and then after a, st a state that had a strike, and see if the support of the strike is still there. Because when a city like Los Angeles goes on strike, there are all sorts of collateral things that happen. It's not just that the kid can't go to school, daycare gets messed up, your work schedule gets messed up because a kid doesn't have activity all day. So a lot of inconvenience. I'd be very curious to see if the if the support. Well, is still we we were in the field when those strikes were uh, ongoing, mm -hmm. and we found higher support in the states where the teachers were on strike than well, in the states where they were not on strike. It's not the case that teachers, when they go on strike, lose public favor. That They actually gain in public favor under those circumstances. We're going to be able to check on that again a year later. We'll go back and be interviewing in those same states and see if that's, that's the case. But uh, I think the feeling that, oh, yes, the public will be reacting horror when teachers go on strike, that's not really. That's precisely why we're getting these strikes right now is that there's the, uh, the public uh, envelope within which teachers are operating is supportive of this kind of militancy. What does your gut tell you as to why support increases during a strike? Do people just have a, just a, is there just a disposition that they, they feel teachers' pains, they feel teachers are up against it, or? Well, one thing is the media. The media gives the union uh, position again and again and again, and management feels reluctant to talk about it because if they go out there and talk too much, um, they get exposed, they want to, they want to, they want to keep their, uh, they don't want to give, give away their position. Right. Uh, so you really get a one-sided media in the middle of a strike. And it's, and if the media has probably a bias in favor of labor, and more generally speaking, but uh, it, it is the case that the union is right. uh, very articulate during this period of time and management is pretty silent. That's a great observation, Paul. If you watch the coverage coming out of Los Angeles in the strike, the media would go on the picket line and they'd talk to each teacher, and each teacher would have a tale of woe about their classrooms being overcrowded. They have to um, go into their own pockets for supplies and so forth. And who had the counter? In the case of Los Angeles, it's a gentleman named Austin Butner, who's actually a friend of mine. Uh, he is the superintendent of LAUSD, the Los Angeles Unified School District. Austin's also a fabulously wealthy individual. And so he's just easy to betray him as sort of the cold-hearted Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. <laughs> so <laughs> here you have the very sympathetic teachers, and then here's the unsympathetic-looking rich guy saying, eh, we'd really like to help them, but times are tough. So, yeah, who wins that PR battle? <laughs> yeah, well, this is often the case that, uh, you know, that you can always find a horror story right. that will dramatize uh, your position. Now, one of the things that people don't realize is that schools have been getting more and more money for years, but they're not putting it into teacher salaries. Right. They're, you, they're putting it into retirement. We've talked about that, but they're also just hiring people. Mm -hmm. We have many more people working for the school system. They're not teachers. They're right. doing other stuff. I don't even know exactly what they're doing, but they're doing a lot of other stuff. And, uh, if, and actually, even the union, when it comes in, it not only demands an increase in salary for teachers, but it says let's hire more librarians, let's hire more uh, guidance counselors, let's hire more uh, other staff members who can help out. And uh, all of them pay dues. Right, they all belong to the union, so they pay so dues. So the union really is more interested in more bodies than higher salaries for teachers. So really, it, you could say the unions uh, sell out their own membership 
right. uh, in favor of organizational interests. So, Paul, you mentioned about um, contributions to pension plans. LAUSD back in 2415, Paul, they contributed about 5.5% of its annual budget to that. Uh, last year, 8%. So that's taking off. But big picture in California. So Gavin Newsom, the new governor of California, gave a state of, the, uh, a state of state address the other day. And he talked about education in California. And he said there's good news and bad news to report. And the good news is the state of California spends about $80 billion now in education, K-12 through in California. And seven years ago, it spent about $47.3 billion. There so, you go. 47 yeah. to $80 billion. Right. A lot more money is going into so education. Than strong economy, right. Democratic governor, Democratic legislature. There are mandates in California, Prop 98, which dictates a certain amount of the budget goes to education. So there you go. So the thing is, you know, per near doubled in a couple of years from now. Uh, but here's also what Newsom had to say. First of all, he lamented that per pupil uh, spending in California, Paul, is 41st in the nation. I know this is widely debated. I've seen studies that have it closer to like 29 or 30 in the nation, but he said 41. But here's what Newsom said after that. He said, quote, <clears throat> we need clear and achievable standards of transparency, more information sharing and accountability for all public schools, traditional and charter. What is the governor talking about, Paul? Well, you know your governor better than I do. It sounds, uh, it sounds awfully tough. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that we know is that uh, the state of California has on its books uh, teacher tenure laws and seniority laws right. that uh, make it very difficult to remove an ineffective teacher. And unless you can remove the, the, the bad apples in the barrel, the barrel is going to not be as good as it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And, and furthermore, so long as you have these seniority rules, you're going to have an inegalitarian system because teachers, as they become more experienced, as they become better teachers, they're going to gravitate to the more desirable teaching positions, which right. are the kids who are easy to teach. So the, unfortunately, it's very difficult to teach students who come from homes that are not educationally friendly uh, households. Mm -hmm. And it's a really hard job to be a teacher in those difficult circumstances. And to throw rookie teachers into those challenging settings is not something you would expect a liberal legislature and a liberal governor to do, but they are doing that in the state of California. Let's talk about what the state should be doing otherwise. So this is a state that's spending a lot more in education than it was a few years ago. Um, this is also a state, Paul, where um, housing is horribly expensive. California is 49th in the nation in housing affordability. California is 40th overall in its tax burden. So you're a teacher making $79,000 in California. Good luck buying a house and you feel it at tax time. So Paul, should the state be looking? We're in Palo Alto, for example. So I know there are local initiatives to take county property and convert them into housing for teachers. Uh, Gray Davis, who was the governor before Arnold Schwarzenegger, that literally is a Jeopardy question, by the way, named the governor before Arnold Schwarzenegger. But Gray Davis very briefly flirted the idea of making public school teachers tax exempt. I think Governor Davis is also looking to run in Iowa and having the teachers union support him be a great thing. So that idea didn't go very far. But what can we be doing to help teachers to ease their pain? Do we, do we need some sort of Manhattan-like project here in California to find them housing? Do we, do we ease their tax burden? Where would you go? Well, every time you introduce something like that, um, it, what happens on the other side is the salaries don't go up as much as they otherwise would because right. 
uh, other people say, well, look, they're now getting that, so then we don't have to give them this. So, you know, this is sort of just shifting uh, money around from one bucket to another. And, right. you know, basically we've, we feel like people should uh, be given their compensation, whatever they do, and they should then choose to live it the way they want to live it. And, the, and once you say, okay, we're going to give you more money, but you have to spend it on housing. Well, how about all the people who don't need another house? Maybe they're, they're, uh, they're a single person and they don't, they don't want to buy a house. So mm-hmm. why should some teachers get the benefits rather than other teachers right so the more you can treat people in a with it's it's common sense to give people the money and let them choose the best way to spend it for themselves right and also we're, we just we're beginning down a gigantic slippery slope Paul of saying okay teachers should not pay taxes well what about a nurse what about a firefighter what about an EMT and a first responder what about the person working in a DNA lab in a county they're, they're solving crime so all these people doing noble things to society who doesn't get a tax break and before you know it you have a gigantic entitlement on your most hands. people think they're doing a noble thing if they're right. uh, have a uh, why isn't the person who's right. cleaning the streets not doing a noble thing? Maybe that's we should give him a free house. And the other thing about taking away people's tax money, Paul, is that's less money going to the state, which means less money for education. Well, it, it, of course, you can uh, argue this one three ways around, but right. the basic thing is once you start uh, paying people in ways other than through the regular compensation system that seems to have worked very well in a capitalist society mm-hmm. for a few hundred years, uh, right. you're you're introducing a very lumpy way of compensating people. Right. So we keep talking here about spending, spending per pupils, but we haven't talked about outcomes. So let's put you in charge of the state of California in education. What do you do to improve outcomes? Well, you know, one of the things that I've been doing lately is to look at how much has, have, have students learned over the last 50 years. And one of the things I'm discovering is that uh, students in the United States as a whole and I think this is true of California, though I can't say for sure it is, but I think it is. In the United States as a whole, students today in eighth grade know about a year more, as best we can measure by tests, than they did 50 years ago. Why don't you choose 50 years as your uh, Well, that's your how long we can trace it. Okay. The, the United States government has uh, tracked student performance in a systematic way for 50 years. And so mm-hmm. we can now, for the first time, really say, over the past half century, uh, how have things gone? And, okay. and we find that it's gone um, not so badly. Of course, it's not that like that that's great. That's the worldwide average as well. Right. All over the world, where we have measures, it looks like people are improving a little bit. Now, this is Maybe because parents are better educated, maybe because parents have more money, maybe because you have more investments in child's education even before they come to school. Mm-hmm. I think it's these demographic factors that are driving it. Now, that all, if you, so it all looks not so bad. It's nothing great, but not so bad by, by eighth grade, but we see no change uh, by age 17. So all the gains that have uh, taken place are lost by the time the student ends finishes high school. So, t- so, so that leads so, me so, to the conclusion that the high schools are, are really in bad shape. Okay, so so gains are made from K through 8, but then they're lost. They're given away 9 through 12. Right. In, the, okay. in, in, in high school, they're essentially the same as they were 30 years ago. Why is this? Teachers, hormones, what's what's causing this? Well, problem? I think for one thing, high school teachers are being paid less than they used to be. Okay. So, so we're now paying elementary school teachers more relative to high school teachers. So and getting, so, so, so that may be why the, the lower grades are, are, 
are hanging in there, but the uh, high school teachers aren't. That could be one thing. A poor Another thing care. is it could be that uh, we, we don't really ex know what to expect of high school students anymore. Now that we have the college system, all that all it's thought is just get a, a, a degree somehow. Right. A, a great inflation is a big part of the story. Mm -hmm. There's no well-defined purpose of high school. Very hard. We don't have any accountability systems set up. All the accountability systems are set up through grade eight. Right. Very, almost nothing in the high school. So these are the, there are multiple factors, but I would say if you're gonna try to reform the California education system, don't start at the bottom, start at the top. The last three, four years of schooling really need serious attention. Mm -hmm. Uh, the state has a lot more money to throw into education for the next couple of years. Eventually, the economy is going to go south here, and there'll be a problem. But for now, there's just more money coming in. Where would you spend it, Paul? Well, I would redefine high schools. I think I've just sort of said what I Redef would do. Redefine I would, high schools. What does that well, mean? Well, let, let, let's have many small high schools, fewer big comprehensive schools. Let's find what students want to do when they are entering into high school, whether mm -hmm. they want to work in a career-oriented, a skilled job, looking for a trade, or whether they want to go right. into a more academic thing. Let's kids go to different kinds of schools and smaller schools and give them a lot more options instead of trying to try to do everything in one school and therefore end up doing nothing. And also let's have some examinations for students. I think students should be said, you know, if you don't perform this well on an external examination outside the high school, something that the state or the school district or some external agency right. sets up so that everybody, it's clear, you, whatever course you're taking, you're gonna have to perform at this level or you're not gonna pass this course. Now you're kind of rattling the cage of higher education in California, Paul, because the idea is you graduate from high school, you should be able to go on to college. There's a UC system waiting for you, a CSU system, and a community college system. And the state's going to make community college as free as it can for people. So there's this mindset, I'm afraid, that if you don't go to college in some way, that you have failed. College should be there to continue your education. What you're suggesting is maybe not everyone should go to college. Well, I'm all for giving everybody a scholarship to go to college, or at least to begin to go to college if they are from low income, provided that they demonstrate that they're ready to go to college. Right. But right now, graduation from high school is the equivalent of being ready to go to college. And we know for sure that that's not the case because mm -hmm. about 50% of all the kids who start junior colleges in the United States are dropping out before the end of the first year. Before right. the end of the first year, they are dropping out. So half of the students entering into our junior college system are dropping out. They, they may get some money to attend. The costs aren't very great. There, this can't be for serious, it can't be financial decisions alone that are driving this. This has to be that basically the high school didn't prepare them for college. So how are they graduating from high school? Kids are graduating from high school at higher rates than ever before. How is this happening? Well, we have this new system called the credit recovery system out there, where if you fail a class, you can take it over again online. Mm -hmm. You go into a special room and you sit there and you work away on this online version of the course, which uh, you can keep on taking these tests over and over again. You have this segment of the class, you take a test, and eventually you're gonna guess enough right answers that you can move on. And so this has absolutely had a, a very positive effect on graduation rates. Whether it's had any effect on learning, we don't know. You look at especially the CSU system in uh, California, Paul, and there's a huge problem with remedial learning, especially English and math. 
Well, that's why they are, that's, that, that's precisely what's happening. They're coming out of high school and they have to go into remedial courses as they, as they enter college and they'll fall, uh, drop out of them uh, within a few months. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any studies? So you did the 50-year parallel of, uh, of, um, of uh, K through 12 education. Have you seen anything that compares college educations over the past 50 years? It's much harder to tra track college education, right. and I really don't have any data on that at all because we don't have any in the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which we use to, to track uh, Kids in eighth grade, we just have nothing like that for the college. I'm just curious in terms of workforce, prepare, workforce preparedness and really workforce adaptability. Well, one of the things that we have to be surprised at is how few students are graduating from college with a BA degree, a four-year degree. A we know that students with a four-year degree are earning a lot more relative to other students. Right. So that means there must be something good that's happening if you can graduate. But the, uh, the uh, graduation rate from our colleges is surprisingly low. Only about a third of the students in the United States are graduating with a four-year degree. And uh, given how wealthy we are and how uh, important education is for um, the country to grow and survive economically, it's amazing that only a third of our students are graduating from our colleges. That is graduation period from college, Paul, or on-time graduation? Oh, that's after six years. After six years. Yeah, that's okay. not like four-year. Yeah, there's a big difference between four-year and six-year, but these are the six-year so this takes into account kids who go to college and drop out of college? Or well, kids you can miss all the way along. Right. You know, you can maybe take a year off before you go to college. It, you know, it's the six-year gap between high school graduation and college graduation. What's a lot at Animal House? Eight years of college down the drain? <laughs> yes, it's all possible. Right? All possible. Um, let's shift gears now and look at the nation's capital. This is a Trump podcast. So let's talk about something Trumpian, and that is the Federal Department of Education. I think I asked this question the last time you're on our podcast, Paul. I'm going to ask it again. Do we need a Federal Department of Education? Yes, I think we do. We, we need to sh uh, have the capacity to shine a spotlight on what's happening to our education system. And that's the role of, of the federal government to inform us as to what the uh, school system is doing. That's the way that's, that was uh, the Office of Education was established in 1870. And mm -hmm. its only function initially was to gather statistics on what was happening in our education system. And if you don't have a federal agency that's doing that, you're not going to be able to tell what's going on. Even so, it's very difficult to find out what's happening in all those 14,000 school districts across the country. But this is our primary mechanism. And this has been supplemented in a wide variety of ways. And I think the uh, U.S. Department of Education has played a, a major service. I also think the U.S. Department of Education has played an enormously positive role in providing for special education mm -hmm. under the uh, uh, law passed in 1974 and signed into law by uh, Gerald Ford. Uh, we uh, created a system that uh, allowed us to provide services to extremely disabled children and m moderately disabled children, and I think this has really been a very humane and positive, uh, uh, and I, I don't think it could have happened without the federal government being engaged. So there's a very important positive things that are done through the Department right, so of and Education. Accountability and special education, are there any instances where the Department of Education would be trimming its sales? Well, that's one of the good things about uh, the current Secretary of Education. Uh, Betsy DeVos has taken a good, careful look at some of the things that were put into place mm -hmm. by the Obama administration, and uh, they were becoming hypo-regulatory, both at the higher education level and at the uh, K-12 level. They were, right. uh, I mean, they were doing it with a very, very sketchy uh, 
legal basis. Uh, they were interpreting laws in ways that were very um, um, distant from what the actual words of the legislation said mm -hmm. and uh, writing uh, very elaborate uh, colleague, they called them dear colleague letters, which didn't even go through the normal regulatory process. And then they were telling uh, school districts that they would uh, sue them if they didn't uh, comply with these dear colleague letters. So right. uh, a lot of that stuff is being pulled back under the uh, uh, current administration, and I, I have to give the uh, secretary credit for that. Uh, she does not have an education degree, correct? Uh, well, a education degree, does that mean that she go to a college of education and get a degree? Right. As, uh, but this is the criticism. A, a credential. She, she doesn't have an ed degree. She doesn't have hands-on teaching experience. Well, you know, the, her, she's an educated woman, and yes. therefore she has perfectly... Uh, uh, all the capacities needed to to uh, administer a program that's going to affect. Uh, Thank you. You're going exactly. You're going exactly where I want to. When we look at education reform in America, Paul, does one have to have an advanced degrees in education to understand what to do for schools? Well, if you look at the private sector, uh, they don't worry at all about whether you've got a credential. Right. <clears throat> they just say, "Is this look like a person who's well-educated and can teach the subject matter? Right. And they hire that person regardless of their credential. Now, that doesn't mean they won't hire somebody with a credential. Right. There's plenty of talented people who have an education credential. Right. But there are plenty of people who don't. So to say that nobody can work in the field of education if they don't have a degree from a particular institution or a particular program within an institution right. is sort of excludes uh, looking for people wherever they are. So this ties back to my friend, Mr. Butner. Los Angeles, whose background Paul is in finance, and then he actually uh, started working in city government in Los Angeles. He was deputy mayor. I think he ran the Department of Water and Power at one point, and he was appointed to be superintendent of LAUSD. And you could say, well, wait a second. He has no background in education. On the other hand, he's run stuff, and maybe he'd be a good manager. Well, you know, the, the, the police department say we got to have uh, somebody who walked the beat, the head of the police department. The same right. said by the fire department. I mean, uh, there's an awful lot of agencies out there who try to say uh, the people at the top have to come up from the bottom. And I can see uh, that why they make that claim. Uh, you will know more about how the whole thing. You have to. Say, uh, Winston Churchill said when he uh, uh, was. Uh, uh, in the admiralty in in uh, in World War One, he said, "Well, you know what? Uh, I need to go see what the front lines were like." And he really went to the front lines and right. fought as a soldier, and 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 then came back to uh, to government. Uh, so yeah, so that that idea, I can see the sense behind it, but then you necessarily and, and probably in the armed forces we have the same idea that mm. if you've never been a grunt, although we now bring in officers at a higher level, so. You know, the most important thing is that they they have the talent and the, and the training to do the job that they are to do, not that they have uh, uh, come up through the ranks. Right. I think uh, Churchill also said the most exhilarating thing in life is to be shot at. <laughs> yes, he, he very much in, uh, was willing to take risks in life, and I don't know how he ever made it to age 90. I, well, it, just look at the man's diet, and that's another puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who gives you a hard time about smoking cigars or eating rich food or drinking, you just at all times say, Winston Churchill would live to be 90 until he exercised a day in his life. So <laughs> miracle of medicine. But speaking of being shot at, Betsy DeVos certainly knows what it's like to be shot at, and she's going to have a very rough 2019, Paul. House Democrats are going to call her up to the Hill constantly and grill her. 
is there is there legitimate criticism for the way she has done her job? Is there a legitimate criticism? You know, she, the people who uh, feel uh, disappointed is are the ones who say, well, she was brought in to introduce school choice. Right. And um, the Trump administration has yet to make a major step forward in that direction. They've done a few incremental things. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I don't think that uh, this is strictly her decision. This decision comes from higher levels, and it's also constrained by what this... Uh, happening on Capitol Hill because you can talk about school choice all you want, but you've got to get a law passed through Congress. And uh, even when Republicans are in power, there's plenty of opposition. So the window is closed on that now. Uh, so I would say that's sort of a disappointment given where she was at the beginning. She promised mm -hmm. something there and she hasn't been able to uh, fulfill that obligation. Mm -hmm. I think her, her, uh, her record uh, when it comes to uh, uh, acting uh, with in the sphere where she has authority uh, it looks pretty good. In mm -hmm. Title IX, this is probably a whole other podcast to get into, but what can she do on Title IX? Well, the biggest issue out there now is on sexual harassment out there, and right. what she has been doing out on, on that front is to think uh, to try to encourage a balanced approach. Of mm -hmm. course, we have to deal with the problem of sexual harassment right. in our colleges and in our high schools, and uh, that's a, it's a new phenomenon that people need to attend to in our schools. Uh, there's a lot of cases out there of teacher-student uh, sexual harassment, and uh, those things are being swept under the table. Uh, I think there's enough, there's as much of a story there as there are is in other sectors, which has not really been looked at. The Chicago Tribune just uncovered a massive set of scandals in um, in the city of Chicago. I don't think that's an isolated case. I think there's plenty more out there. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, sexual harassment is an important question. On the other hand, you have to say there is such a thing as the rights of the accused. And right. we can't just sort of say that. In this area, anybody can make an accusation and you, you don't have to have... Uh, uh, give the defense any of the usual rights to defend themselves against these accusations. And I think what's happened with the secretary is she's been searching for a balance in that space. Yeah, I'm just fascinated by this issue. I have a godson who goes to Dartmouth. And when you attend a college right now, especially as a young man, you're walking on eggshells. It's a very, com dealing with women on a daily basis is complicated in terms of social interaction, just in terms of knowing your place on the college. And I think a lot of young people out there are just trying to figure out what society ba societal bounds are. We're here on the Stanford campus. Stanford's had a very public problem with this over the past few years. You you work at Harvard, Harvard's had issues. Yale's had problems with this, the famous case of the basketball player who was uh, brought up on charges of this. This is a genuine problem with American colleges right now. Well, it is a problem, and uh, we should, uh, I think probably we're going to get out of this as a better society because I think uh, uh, women need to be protected against uh, right. the uh, uh, untoward advances of mm -hmm. predators, and uh, I think probably they're better able to do that today than they were at, once, at, at one time. Um, at the same time, I think we can't go overboard and say that anybody who is accused has no right to a defense. I particularly was interested in the fact that somebody who wanted to defend uh, somebody who was accused at Harvard University uh, of uh, sexual harassment, uh, and she wanted to defend and said, no, really, that wasn't the case. Well, then uh, her name became public, whereas yeah. the accuser's names were not made public. Her name was made public, 
and then she was har harassed herself for having to come to the defense of this person. And so, you know, trying to find the balance out there, that, that's, that's, the, that's the challenge. And how does the government find that balance, Paul? This be the last question. Does, do a bunch of smart people sitting around a table in Washington, D.C. figure the balance? Does she need to go around the country and to talk to administrators in colleges? Do you bring kids into the room? How exactly do you well, figure out how Well, what she has done is she's sort of in, uh, said we're going to have a new set of regulations right. where the rights of the accused are protected. And so mm -hmm. I think that's the most that we can expect uh, uh, a federal agency to do. And she's been hit very hard for this in the press. Uh, yes, yeah. she has. Yes, she has. So she just has to what, just stand her ground? Well, the press is going to be critical of you when you are an office holder. You have to expect that, and especially if you're a conservative office holder in the, in the current environment. Okay, final question. You're headed back to Harvard soon? Yes, I am. What are you working on? Well, we have a project which is looking at, is government more effective when the resources come from the local community, or is it more effective when they get their money from the national government and the state government? Right. So that's something that's a, a big story here in California, because right. it used to be that school districts got all their money from the local community, and, and now they get almost all their money from the national government. And we're finding, when you really seriously look at this nationwide, that uh, it makes a big difference whether or not you uh, are asking the local people for their money. They make sure you spend it in a, in a more effective way. Very good. Paul Peterson, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. I'm, I've enjoyed this opportunity to uh, talk about these really important issues here in California. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends about us when we get our listenership up. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover Fellows, including Paul Peterson, straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. I reference Paul's work with Education Next. The website for that is educationnext.org. And they're on Twitter, and their Twitter handle is, not surprisingly, at Education Next. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.